welcome everybody. We are continuing with our uh, um, practice during the summer of, of utilizing the, uh, the texts from the lectionary. And so I'm going with the gospel text that was today uh, for the 9.30 service and for all the other lectionary churches in the world. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 8. And it reads, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. So just like last Sunday, is there anything in that text that just kind of stands out to you, Karen? Yeah, that he's telling them not to go to uh, the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Okay. stood out to me was that like don't go to these places which seems um, counter to like the discussions we've had about Jesus's messages yeah. uh, but I do like that um, you received without payment and then so you're now going to give without payment yeah that seems a message within and I, I actually don't touch on that line in this uh, that really is um, it's a very Jewish thing it's about, you know, and it goes back to the Torah. Um, you know, the Torah is not given with payment. Uh, do not use the Torah for payment either. Um, so that's Jesus very much stepping into his Jewish identity as a rabbi. That the Torah is also good news, but it's not good news that is contained and held back. It is free for everybody. All right. Well, my hope, of course, is to give historical context to this stuff um, as best as I can. Can, um, but I also, you know, my hope, I think we had a really wonderful conversation last week with the text, and my hope is to kind of um, pull out for us maybe something inspirational as well than just giving historical context. So uh, really the historical context is kind of the first half, and then the part that I'm pulling out is the second half. Um, and I, I've split that up in two ways, explicit interpretation and implicit interpretation. Um, so, you know, if we look at the historical context, um, what is the obvious explicit message of, of this text? And I think it's important to bring it out because even though it's so explicit, it has not been a central part of the church's identity for a very, very, and that is this missional aspect of the original Jesus community. Um, I, I marked the verse, so that very first paragraph in the text, verses 35 through 38. Um, this is 
from Matthew, but this story is also in Mark, and it's also in Luke, which means it's also probably in the Q sources. We don't have, no one's ever been able to recover the Q source, but we have enough information about it that scholars, I mean, real biblical scholars are certain of its existence. And the Q sources would have predated the Gospels, and really what they were were sayings of Jesus. The Q source wasn't necessarily a gospel telling the story of Jesus' actions and, and ministry and healings and, and miracles and stuff like that. The Q source was a collection of things that Jesus said. And scholars believe the Q source is probably mostly historic, uh, is, is mostly consistent with the historical Jesus. These are probably things that the real, live, bleeding, breathing, living, loving Jesus actually said. Because we know that this first paragraph here is from the Q sources, you can say with a pretty good amount of certainty that this is a staunch reflection of the historical Jesus. Meaning that the original Jesus movement, the movement that Jesus tried to create, was a missional movement. Now maybe a better way to think about that is with John the Baptist. So, and I've shared this before I think in our Empire series, but you have the same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has stories in the gospel, and we're not sure how many of those stories are true or how many of those stories were added by later gospel writers, but there was also a historical John the Baptist. We know that for sure. And um, that John the Baptist had his own kind of unique movement as well. Uh, a, a, a fair amount of scholars believe Jesus, the historical Jesus, was part of the Baptist movement. And then when John the Baptist was executed by Herod, kind of pulled back and took a different tactic or a different strategy. But one of the hallmarks of the Baptist movement is that John the Baptist wasn't trying to empower people. John the Baptist was doing this repentance movement. He was baptizing people in the River Jordan. He was calling them to repent of their sins, specifically of... Um, not caring for the widows, the orphans. John the Baptist believed that Rome was God's punishment against Israel for neglecting what the prophets warned about. And so John the Baptist was doing this massive movement of calling people to come, repent of their sins, be baptized, and live a new life, but in their everyday lives. Come be baptized, but then just go back to your normal lives and just be better. Jesus was uniquely different, and Jesus wasn't trying to invite people for an experience and then just send them on their way. Jesus was trying to specifically invite people into this movement. And one of the ways we see that is in this missional thing. Jesus is empowering the disciples to go out and do the same thing that he did. And that is unique to Jesus as opposed to John. And that's why we have a Jesus movement that lasts and a John the Baptist who kind of just becomes a character in the story of that movement. Um, that missional identity was centered on acts of compassion. You know, as Jesus says throughout the text, go out and cure, raise, cleanse, cast out. Uh, this is consistent with Jesus in chapters 8 and 9. So what you do see is a pattern here. Uh, it's, you know, watch me do and then you go out and do. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, keeps it consistent to, you're going to emulate the very exact same thing that I'm doing. He's not asking his disciples to go and do different things. He's not asking them to go and start churches. He's not asking them to go and worship or create worship-centered communities. He's asking them to go and travel around the way he did and, uh, and, and engage in acts of compassion and justice the way he did, which were entirely centered on people who are outcast, marginalized, oppressed, and empowering them and restoring them. And then, of course, in the text, he ties this to the kingdom of heaven. And Lauren said that stands out. Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what brings the kingdom of heaven out. Um, one thing with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, as I said, the Greek says it's at hand. A lot of our English text says that it's near. The truth is, the, the Greek, what it's both of those things. It's that the kingdom of heaven is both near, meaning it's not here yet, it's in the future, and it's here now. It's a process. 
That's the way the Greek understands it. It's a process that's here now. We experience it here and now, but this isn't the fulfillment. It hasn't completely um, finished, that, it's an, which just means it's an ongoing work. There was, throughout history, when we get to the medieval era, an explicit change to that, where, where the change was the kingdom of heaven is near, meaning that it's not present in any kind of a way. It's not an ongoing thing. It's in the future. So like the kingdom of heaven is ongoing, that was like a process that's continuing to happen. That's the historical way of understanding it, but when it was changed to this idea of being near, like imagine the timeline, here you are in the present moment, here is a wall in front of you, and just on the other side of that is near, right? It's But it's still separated by a wall. Mm -hmm. It's close to you in proximity. But not actually. But it's completely separated from you do not have access to it. And the way that the medieval church justified that was that wall is your death. So when you die, you cross that plane into where that heaven is. Laurel, did your hand go up? So are they saying, like, when he's saying it's near to go out and do all this stuff, are, is he saying, like, it's close enough that if we go out and we make these changes to make things better, we're getting close enough to have the kingdom of heaven, like, within our reach here on earth? A little, he's saying even a little more than that. He's saying that as, as you are engaged in those practices, so one thing to note, anytime Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's always connected to acts of compassion. It is never connected to the afterlife. Really? <laughs> it is always connected. So you always have acts of compassion in the kingdom of heaven, basically holding hands with each other when Jesus is talking about it. And so it's a twofold thing. One, if you are engaged in the acts of compassion, you are experiencing the kingdom of heaven. However, the more of us engage in the acts of compassion, the more of heaven is brought. So it's an ongoing process. So you do experience it here and now, but you are not experiencing the fulfillment of it. That only happens as more and more of us engage in it. And as it starts, I mean, the more that engage in it, the more it starts to shape systems, values, culture, etc. And truly, that's what brings the kingdom. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I'd say 2,000 years later, we're still working that one out. But there is an intentional motivation in telling people, no, the kingdom of heaven is not here and now. It is only near. There is a separation there. You are fully separated from nearness. Right? That wall is near to me, but I can't touch it. The kingdom of heaven is near, but you can't touch it. You can only touch it when you die. And if you do some, the right things. That's very different than the kingdom of heaven is both here and now and near. And that was very intentional of the historic Jesus movement. And you know, John Dominic Crossan calls it the kingdom movement because that's what Jesus is empowering his disciples to do. Don't just go and do this stuff for people, but as you're doing it, tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it creates this pattern of Jesus does, see me do, now you go do. Then people see you do, then they go do. And it's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing and creates a completely different cycle that's meant to be a counter uh, response to the cycles, the hierarchies, the patriarchies, all of the stuff of their, their time and day. Which seems like a giant game of telephone where at some point the message changes based on like each person's interpretation that happens. Yeah. But you know, like telephone, you're almost guaranteed to get it wrong. I think if the church didn't become powerful, it would have gotten it right. Like it would have been the first telephone game where the last person had the same message as the first person. You know, Steve. I guess it occurs to me is it also the case that Jesus, in his words and ministry, sort of redefined the idea that God is punishing people by, you know, with the Roman Empire, that the, the Roman Empire is ruling because you all screwed up. And he doesn't seem to say that, whereas the prophets in the Old Testament often are saying, the reason things are bad for you is because you didn't, you didn't do the right thing, but the way God is punishing you is by having you occupied and, and taken that's a That's a really good question. Um, as I think about it, my head tried to like, capture all of Gospels in my mind right now. <laughs> I don't think I don't think 
Jesus ever says anything that looks at Rome as being a punishment. Um, however, Jesus and John both believed that the way people were supposed to live, that was consistent. You know, John, John had a repentance movement. We're being punished, so you need to start acting this way so that we're not punished. And Jesus said, you need to act this way, the same way, so that you experience the kingdom of heaven. You know, it seems like you don't have to wait for Rome to fall to enter the kingdom of God. And not only that, like, when you look at the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, they're almost always by themselves, right? Just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the prophets in, in the Hebrew Bible, they're typically on their own. Um, Jesus is different in that respect. Jesus is not on his own. He, is, he, is, he has a following of people during his entire ministry. We think of the 12 apostles, but the truth is he had dozens of people following him constantly. Um, and, and Jesus was very intentional about trying to empower entire communities of people to act and live differently. I thought that there were schools of prophets, you know, like Elijah and Elisha and you know, Saul, they talk about the school of prophets. It depends on the prophets you're talking about. I mean, prophets in a general category, there were schools of prophets, there were schools, but the, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, those like specific prophets, do not have their own, you know, at least I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, it's not really important, I just, yeah. I go, really? I thought there were. So like the school of Elijah was like centered around somebody else's teaching his teachings? No, like Elijah no, definitely didn't have a school, um, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Well, yeah, Elijah following him. Do you think it was just the two of them? That's the way the Hebrew Bible has it yeah. written out, yeah. Um, so I can't think of any. But there were, like, there's a story where Jeremiah um, has kind of an altar off with right. the, the prophets of Baal. Yeah. And those prophets would have been a school of prophets. Right. I thought Saul, you know, he's out there, pro he was supposed to be going doing something else, and he was caught up with school of prophets and he was out there prophesying they know what to do yeah so no I, and, and i didn't mean that in the general sense of all prophets but just the specific prophets that i can think of in the hebrew bible not training up a school like jesus correct was. just kind of uh calling people out but they're also kind of the lone wolf doing it mm -hmm. um and paul definitely had schools following absolutely that. and and the same level of empowering people the way jesus is portrayed to empower people in the gospels mm -hmm. yeah um all this to say that you just simply cannot deny this pattern as, as part of the historic Jesus movement, yeah. which is which is an interesting thing to say because that's not been the hallmark identity marker of the church today. Like the church today is not really a church centered in see me do these acts of compassion and so I can empower you to do these acts of compassion. Um, but this is the centerpiece of the historic Jesus movement. It's not a worshiping community. It's not a community that's trying to set up a new belief system. It's a community of people uh, trying to live out a very missional identity centered in acts of compassion and justice, specifically for the least of these. And, and, and it's just baffling to me that you cannot deny the centrality. It's, it's, it's as explicit as it possibly can be in the Gospels. And yet somehow the church decided to go a different direction, which is why it's so easy for people today to call out the church. Um, Livier sent me a video this morning of a woman at a school board in Texas. Um, it, or at, it wasn't a school board, it was a city council um, who was making a proclamation for pride. And during that proclamation, um, other citizens in the town came and said pretty vehement things, and they were representative of their local church. And this woman came, comes up at the end, and and she just blasts the church. And and her her biggest critique is like, how can you, how can the people who came here on behalf of, of religion and Christianity, who say all of these really vehement things towards LGBTQ people, say that they represent Jesus when we look at the Gospels and see Jesus acting completely different? It's so easy to call out the church sometimes for not acting like Jesus because this part of the Gospels is just so loud and explicit. It's just a constant, like, indictment of the church. And that there are missions that are happening, so that there's, like, a possibility that they are saying that, yes, we are following this thing because we're sending out our missions, but the missions that are going out are more about, like, converting people to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. But there's, like, like the idea that you're going... but 
build, you're helping a community is also how it's, it's adverse. When you think of the event, like, you think of the way you can alter that message, right? If a missionary group, so a lot of the mission trips I've heard about, you know, are more about what? We're going to go and tell people about Jesus. Um, growing up in the ELCA, all the mission trips I went on were like, we're literally just going to go help people. Um, and that's it. Um, oh, hospital, schools, there's been a lot of that done. Yeah, absolutely. When you think of this kind of mission, like we call this a mission trip, right? Like, what's the messaging that's going on in addition to the work? The messaging isn't, hey, we're doing this work so that you would believe in, in God. The messaging is, we're doing this work and the kingdom of heaven is here and now. And the kingdom of heaven is a value system that is abundantly different than the value system that you're used to. Like, this missional work could have left out God language entirely if it wanted to and just said the kind of mission work we're creating is to try to build different systems and values than the Greco-Roman Second Temple Judaism system of values that you're used to. And we're just going to call that the kingdom of heaven. Um, and the church has lost that, that messaging as well. The church isn't trying to be out there and say, hey, the value systems of our society today are... Um, patriarchal, consumerist, um, individualistic, uh, homophobic, whatever. Um, it's just, it's, it's still just trying to do acts of compassion and then attach God's name to it and say, look, if you, if you believe in God too, then this could kind of be your life also. Yeah, I think that's just the problem with uh, contemporary Christianity today is that it's, it's just like a, a mask for, it's, it's to cover their own bigotry, really. It's like becomes a, a weapon to impose bigotry, you know, to, to exercise bigotry, to be homophobic. Like there's this movie out right now called uh, Jesus Revolution that uh, came out. It's like the history of the Calvary Chapel um, churches that, that rose up. But uh, it's about the hippie, you know, the, the 60s, 70s, and there was a hippie, Lonnie Frisbee, that um, came to a church in Costa Mesa and introduced like acoustic music and contemporary, what, what is now contemporary Christian music that sounds like more like folk music and rock music. Anyway, um, Lonnie Frisbee, um, the story is about him, but um, what this story, and, and it, it says that he died and, and that he continued preaching at the end. What the story, what the movie covers up though is that he died of AIDS and he died because of homosexual activity and that he uh, was abused as a child and that that was something that he struggled with his whole life. But they just whitewash it in order to present this image of wholesome goodness and we're Christian and then use that to you know, be bigots essentially. To, and, and even within their own story, uh, it's, just, it's just really, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. It's really, I think that's what we're up against, and we're seeing it happening in, in school boards. We're seeing it happen in uh, Santa Barbara, in Temecula, where the Christians are feeling like they have to stand up and, and bring the Bible into the school, and you know, and, and it's just, it's really warped yeah. to, to what the teaching actually is. Part of that is the structure of the church has left this missional identity for so long that it's it's like the institutional memory is gone. It doesn't even realize that this was part of the identity. They're, they honestly are doing this because they think this is how it's always been. Um, and and that, that real missional identity of trying to, to critique the current value system and present a different value system has just been lost. Lauren, your hand. Yeah, I was just, this conversation's reminded me of, because we just went to Dodger Pride Night um, on Friday, I guess it was. But anyways, on the way up, hundreds of protesters with the most vile signs ever against the queer community. But the vast majority of them were from the religious sect saying, stop anti-Catholic, anti-Christian hate. Just Oh, miles down the road, um, stacked with people. And it was really astonishing to see, especially some like families gathering together with, you know, re 
just such a different Jesus than who I know. And it was just like, you know, really in our face, which was... Did you guys go to Pride the year before? No, this was our first, yeah. I I wonder if uh, protesting is unique to this year, too, if it uh, wasn't as present last year. It is. I mean, it's only, you know, it was around the drag group of nuns, the nun drag group. And right now, you know, a lot of the anti-LGBT rhetoric is around the trans community. And they're just really gathering around that rhetoric. Same rhetoric that was used against the gay community years ago. So, yeah. Steve? Yeah, I guess I would say that one of the things is that in those communities that are so upset, so um, angry, part of it, I think, is that, you know, what you talk about on the other side is they're not, they don't see themselves as part of the crowd. They don't see themselves as deserving or receiving compassion. They're fine. There's a way in which it seems to me that one of the things we can talk about in terms of Christianity generally is that a lot of Christians in mainline churches aren't taking very good care of themselves or their neighbors in terms of compassion, tolerance, kindness, generosity, that, um, you know, there's this, so I just have to think about how people don't arrive there just because of religion. They they arrive there because um, they're starved themselves for the same things they're not willing to extend to others. I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that, yeah. And kind of, I mean, talking about the missional identity of this, I'm, I'm not touching so much on the kingdom of heaven stuff. Um, but that kind of messaging, when you add literally hundreds and hundreds of years of reinforcement to it, when the messaging is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's experienced through this kind of missional activity versus the kingdom of heaven is near and you get to experience it after you die is going to completely alter the way one lives one's faith life. And so you can be uh, vile or you could be even damaging to your own body and your own self and not have the same emphasis on that because it's all going to be fixed later on. You can you cannot care for the planet and experience God in creation because God's going to take care of that one day and you don't have to worry about it. And, and reasons the church are not excuses. Huh? And reasons are not excuses. And, and if the church had kept this messaging of not of both this missional identity, primarily not you know not telling people about Jesus, but literally just loving and caring for people, with at the same time it is through this work that the kingdom of heaven is present and ongoing, we would live in a very different world right now. Um, you, the church would look immensely different than it does right. One more thing. One model is like a pay it forward model, you know, like you buy coffee for the person in front of you without, and behind you without telling them, and then they pay it forward to somebody else, and we're just kind of sharing the wealth that way, you know. The other uh, model is uh, it's conditional. It's like you can only get to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ and you accept Him as your Lord and Savior, and you could be the most vile person your entire life, but on your deathbed you can convert and win entrance to heaven in that model. And you know, that's, and, and you could be the best person in life, you could be a good person, but if you don't accept Jesus, then you know, you're gonna burn in hell. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's conditional, and I think that's where the church used the, their power to basically control society, so that in order for people to yeah. win entrance to heaven, you had to go through the church. And there's a whole reason for the church doing that, which I won't get into today, Take way too long. Laurel, did your hand go up? Okay. Um, I'm going to move on because it's not even actually what I want to talk about today. <laughs> uh, so a couple things historically that are unique just to Matthew. So the missional stuff, um, so it's not just that first paragraph, but it's also, um, it's also that last paragraph that Jesus is literally telling the disciples, go out and do the same exact thing that you've been watching me do. That element is absolutely central to the historic Jesus movement. 
Uh, unique to Matthew, though, things that Matthew specifically added to his gospel, which a couple of us have brought up. One is that, that phrase, harassed and helpless. So, so every gospel except for John has this story of Jesus going around town, the various towns, doing this ministry, and then empowering his followers to do the same ministry. Every gospel except for John has that story. However, unique to Matthew is this phrase, harassed and helpless. And the Greek there, especially that word harassed, is specifically used for communities who are being harassed by a powerful force. Now, the reason this is unique to Matthew is because Matthew is writing after the destruction of the Jewish temple, after Rome has finished its destruction of basically Jerusalem entirely. Uh, the Jewish revolt has been fully squashed by this point. Uh, Jewish and Christian people have been hauled off to the Colosseum, not to the Colosseum because they're using the gold from the temple to build it, but they've been hauled off, enslaved, forced to fight, etc., all of those things. Matthew is writing specifically to people who have experienced uh, just the, the absolute uh, depth of Rome's power and destructive forces. And so Matthew is adding this for his audience, that the Jesus community is specifically here for people who have faced oppression at the hands of empire. Um, does that mean Jesus didn't say that? No, but that means that Matthew is taking a Jesus element of this missional identity being present for marginalized people and also adding it specifically to Matthew's group, Matthew's audience, which is also suffering from the hands of Rome after the uh, Jewish revolt and the, the destruction of the Jewish temple. Um, why is Matthew talking so much about Israel? Why does he say don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but, but specifically to the lost people of Israel? Because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. This is one of the ways we get to see the, the uniqueness of each gospel writer. Um, Luke is writing exclusively to a Gentile audience. So Luke doesn't have this Israelite-centered element in his gospel. Matthew is writing specifically to Jewish people, not Christians, not Gentiles, um, specifically Jewish people who were also Jesus followers meaning that they were circumcised. Um, they, they were following all of the rules of Torah, and at the same time, they were also believing and engaging and following this Jesus movement. But they were exclusively Jewish, and Matthew was writing to them and saying this Jesus movement is, is very much a Jewish movement, and it is for you people. While at the same time, Paul is setting up communities with Gentiles, Luke is writing at the same time as Matthew to Gentiles. So it's this really interesting and I think wonderfully diverse way of realizing that this Jesus movement is for various communities, but the thing that unites them is their experience of marginalization, oppression, etc. The 12 apostles, why the number 12? Um, 12 is, is uh, a number of wholeness and restoration. Uh, you know, when Israel is at its best, it's when the 12 tribes have finally spread out through the Promised Land and they have each established their own territory. Uh, after the Assyrian revolt and destruction of the Northern Kingdom, that gets separated for the first time. Then the Babylonians come and take care of the Southern Kingdom and they're all separated. Rome has come and, and just done its own thing. And so there's always these visions of when are we going to get back to our days of being a fully restored Israel. And so Matthew is taking that number 12 and saying this happens through Jesus, but primarily through this work. We get to a restored kingdom of Israel when we follow this way of life. That is a juxtaposition from like the Zealot movement. We have a restored kingdom of Israel when we go and kick Rome's ass and take our land back. No, Matthew is saying a very different message. We don't engage in violence. This is a nonviolent movement, but again, it happens through these acts of compassion, justice, etc., which is a powerful statement in and of itself. So I want to go on to the implicit interpretation. This is kind of the focus of my sermon today. Um, and I start with this question, you know, when we read this story, who are we in the story? Now, more often than not, when we think about that, we're usually the followers of Jesus when we're reading the story. And so here we have a story where Jesus is specifically telling his followers, you need to go out and do what I was doing. You need to go out and cure and heal and cast out um, and, and proclaim. You need to do what I was doing. But there's a whole different group in this story that we typically don't think of. Um, 
Sometimes we need to realize we're the crowd. We're the people that the followers are showing up to help. We're the ones being supported. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, is experienced in two ways in this story. It's experienced in the disciples going out and caring for others, and it's experienced in the people who are receiving that love and that support from them. If it wasn't, then they wouldn't be proclaiming the kingdom of heaven as at hand. What they're saying when they make that proclamation and then they engage in that work is you, experiencing this love, this support, this help, this restoration, you are experiencing the kingdom of heaven. And I think we don't put ourselves in that part of the story very often. And maybe it's because we love being the workers, the followers of Jesus, right? Um, maybe it's because we love control and we want to be doing. Maybe it's because we don't want to admit our own vulnerabilities and imperfections. But we don't often see ourselves in place of the crowd who is being proclaimed to about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' miracles, and I've shared this before, they didn't just heal individuals going through afflictions. This was the topic of last Sunday. They restored people to their communities. Every single healing story in the Gospels is restoring somebody to their community. And he's empowering his followers to do the same. However, and that's great news for us, but we honestly spend a lot of time talking about that. I don't think I've ever really spent time talking about how we are the crowd. Um, we are the people who the disciples are showing up for. I have this phrase earlier, you know, it says in the text, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. I think that was in a time when Jesus was alive and walking and doing stuff, but I think we live in a time now where the harvest is still great, but also the laborers are many, you know? There's a lot of us out there trying to do this work, trying to love people and care for people as best as we can. But I don't think we ask ourselves, what does it look like to be on the healing side of the Jesus movement? And I think mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, we are not comfortable putting ourselves in that camp. I don't think we like to admit our own vulnerabilities and our own pain and our own need of healing. story opens us up in a way to say, yeah, we are those people too. We are absolutely the people called to follow Jesus and do this work. But we're also the people who need to receive that love and that support and that compassion. That's kind of what Steve was touching on too, that when you were talking about the different church communities and that they aren't seeing that they need the help. And I, you know, I think there's a way to do that in a secular way that would be even more powerful than a religious sense. Um, I think there's those of us who, you know, I, like my sermon this morning was really written for Bethania. It wasn't written, it's not a sermon you can just take anywhere. Um, but the focus was we need to be able to step back and realize that part of being in a Jesus community is, the, is that two-sided part of sometimes you're the one doing the supporting and sometimes you're the one being supported. And we don't like being supported. But that's the definition of community. I agree. Yeah. Calm. That's the calm part. Community. It is. <laughs> I like this too because I feel like it shifts it, it shifts the power dynamic. Yeah. I think a lot of people, even unconsciously, can kind of get on a high horse. Like if they're, say, serving people at the food distribution or something. There's a you know, sort of po unconscious power dynamic at play. And I really like this because it kind of flips that and it kind of shatters that, yeah. which I think is important. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from 30 Rock where there's uh, there are these two characters. So there's Jack who's like in charge of the corporation and there's Liz who's this uh, creative person and she has a TV show and something has happened on her TV show. So she comes storming into his office and like, you did these things and that's why everything has blown up. And he goes, no, I'm the protagonist. You ruined my thing. And my favorite line is just him saying, no, I'm the protagonist. And the show is very much following Liz. So it's funny to have that shift. But I think that that, I mean, that happens 
all the time and just like a one-on-one interaction that you have with somebody is that you're like experiencing it in your life that you are the protagonist you're the main character that's in this and things are you're doing things or things are happening to you but also like Steve is the protagonist of his story and it like shifts this way that we see the world yeah and it's similar to that but I I mean it's not it's a funny version of it but I I really like the that you're bringing in the fact that we have to admit the fact that like oh we're the ones who are struggling. We're the ones who are hurting. We're the ones who are in need of help. And there's people coming and talking to us and giving us help. Well, I think it also makes us start to be more open to the kind of help that we need, which we don't tend to think about very often. When we're coming from a place of means, usually that has to do with our own individualism. Um, it has to do with this idea of always putting on a strong front and not not only not letting people see what's inside, but not even allowing ourselves to see what's inside. Um, you know, I think in today's world, we think that being afraid is a sign of weakness. And so we always put on tough fronts. Um, we had a wonderful conversation in Book Group this last Thursday about, you know, this guy's telling a story about working in El Salvador wanting to end what the death squads are doing in El Salvador, and his Buddhist teacher tells him, you can't stop the death squads until you realize your oneness with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what a, what a, what a, what an exercise to have to go through to, to realize your oneness with somebody who's causing harm or being angry. <coughs> um, and, and we talked about what does that oneness look like? And I think a lot of people who are angry or harmful are coming from a place of either deep fear, deep hurt, etc. And do we have that fear and that hurt in common with each other? I would say yes. We just end up responding to it very differently. Um, and I, I do think the Jesus movement is kind of to help us get to that space. I think you talked about the us versus them stuff going on in town in your proclamation speech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, getting away from this us versus them narrative, um, I think part of that is realizing that we're all, we're all angry and fearful and anxious, and we're all being told to respond to that fear and anxiety in different ways. There's a lot of us who are doing it in very vitriolic ways. Um, and so what does it look like to be on the healing side? I think a lot of it is to just open yourself up to your own fear and anxiety. I, um, I'm doing summer school with kindergarten and first graders, which is very scary for me. And I, on the first day, talked about, like, you guys are coming in. Uh, I'm feeling, like, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nervousness, but, like, a good amount of, like, confidence that we're going to be okay and get through this. Uh, and asked the, if any students were feeling similarly that they could raise their hands, and some of them did. And I also told them that at some point they're going to be making mistakes and that I'm going to be making mistakes. And that's one of the issues that there's conversations in the educational system that um, there's a lot of fear of making a mistake. And then instead of it seeing a mistake as a learning opportunity, that you see a mistake as a failure and that you're just then a terrible person. Um, and so one way that I was trying to break that down with them is that like, you're going to make mistakes, I'm going to make mistakes. And then sure enough, like an hour later, we were doing something and I realized I had the wrong, have them working on the wrong paper and shared with them like, this is one of those instances where I made a mistake and I'm having us use the wrong paper. So just erase what we have, put it away, take out the one that we're supposed to have and we can move on just to like model that uh, having that power dynamic and like that vulnerability and it's okay that we're making mistakes. Yeah, that's a good start. I tried to create a list here. This is entirely experiential. It's not meant to be a comprehensive list at all. This was me just sitting at my computer trying to think of ways that I think um, we could use healing and be on the loving, supportive side in this story. Um, You know, so one, we don't need to handle every burden by ourselves. I can't tell you how often I encounter this. Um, People going through, and I get this with a lot of the older church members, of like people going through some really shitty stuff. Uh, People who are are like the primary caretakers of their aging family member or their spouse who really needs more help than what what you're capable of. 
check in or when other people check in, it's entirely like, no, 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 I, I need to be able to handle this myself. I don't need any help, you know, or not admitting like, damn, I'm, I'm becoming unraveled in this right now. I need help. I can't handle this. Like, it's all just up front all the time. Um, and, and, you know, we are raised in a society where we're just not supposed to be weak or fragile or vulnerable or admit that we don't have the answers or admit that we're not handling everything well. Um, we always get those questions of like, hey, how are you doing? And I lie a lot. Anytime someone asks me that, I lie. <laughs> I'm fine. I went to school with somebody that didn't, and it was always very uncomfortable. Right? He would have very long things that were going on, and like, I actually didn't want to know. And I realized that like, that was on me that I asked. Yeah, and I could do a whole I thing on like, like, here. Say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not focusing on the like, but I answer. And I'm not focusing on the what you do in that moment. I'm really trying to just focus on the being supportive side, or the being supported side here. But this idea of like, being honest with each other. And, it, and I'm not saying anyone, like some random stranger walking down the street, hey, how you doing? Well, <laughs> let me tell you, but we do have communities around us of people who genuinely care. And I think it also takes a recognition of the fact that you are struggling, right? That if somebody asks you how you're doing, that like you have to actually think and say like, oh, am I fine? Like I don't, how, like where, where am I? Where's my barometer in how things are going for me? Like I am agree. I handling things? And so I think that's I part agree. of that trickiness. So, you know, opening up, uh, letting people in allowing people to help. Um, I think a part of why we don't we don't ask for help is because we also feel like we need to know exactly what kind of help we need. And I'm not gonna tell you that I need help because I don't know what kind of help to tell you I need. But there's so much power in just saying, I can't do this, or I need help. I, I had a part in the, uh, during the pandemic with my council where I got to a point I was getting a lot of backlash for the decisions that we were making about not opening up yet. Um, and I just told the council, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting pretty ready to resign from ministry altogether. I didn't say what help I needed. I didn't say anything. I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I had eight people just, we got this. And they figured it out. And it literally saved my career. Um, there's so much power in just doing that and letting people help you figure out what that help is as a community. Um, we live in a consumerist society that says we need to always be working, always earning, always producing. We look at rest as the antithesis to the American identity. But we need to take time to rest. And not just rest because we're tired, but like, Rest to rejuvenate, you know? Sometimes, like, Livia and I will, uh, we actually each have our own thing. Like, we'll, we'll say, you know, I'm really tired, can you take the kids? And then what do I do? I go and I play video games. And then my brain is amped into the video game, and by the time I'm done playing with it, I'm even more tired than when I took the time to rest. And Livia, it's, you know, TikTok or TV. Um, like, genuine rest. Um, Take time for joy. I don't, I had a moment with my therapist where she just told me, um, you know, I went through the things that I do for fun since from like the end of high school through now. And she said, Chris, all of your fun involves alcohol, marijuana, or technology. And she said, you don't know how to play. You've forgotten how to play. And my God, was she right. And not only is she right, I started thinking of all these other people, too, who I don't think a lot of us know how to play anymore. I went to a training of, like, setting up, like, teaching us how to play a certain game with kids. And then the people leading the workshop made us play. And I was like, I don't like playing games. And I got so involved. And it was so much fun. And it was just like, it was like a mother may I, where, like, the person is turned around and you're, like, sneaking up on them. And then they, like, turn around and try to catch you. And it was... It was all adults, there were like 20 of us, and it was the most fun that I'd had in a very long yeah. time. Having you just playing kids, I mean, I, when I took over the youth group, and that's some of the best times I have had is playing with the youth in just the games that we come up with. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm competitive, and I dominate each of them every time. <laughs> <laughs> I know I do, but we play hard. 
there's so many different ways of joy to be experienced. Um, but, but, but then I also want to say take joy in community. That's another one that I don't think we do very well. Um, and, and I don't mean the community where you work, the community where you're engaged in this missional stuff, but just the community where you get to just, just be, you know? A dinner party, a uh, potluck, I just is such a gift, uh, that potluck every Monday. Um, and then I left an open-ended one here with just and. And what? When I was driving out to the Sequoias, I had uh, saved up all the uh, This American Life's and Hidden Brains that I hadn't listened to, and one of the uh, episodes of This American Life was this woman talking about her experience coming to the United States after growing up in England and like immersing herself in American culture and feeling like she knew like, oh, if I went to high school, I would, I know that I would sit in the cafeteria and we would gossip about everybody. And I knew that fourth period would be PE and it would be terrible. Uh, and so she came to the United States and got to experience some things. And each time that it happened, she just felt so much joy uh, and the stories, the, the theme of that episode was about delight and that there is a poet, Ross Gay, that spent every day writing down things that delighted him and he had to hand write them and he had to do it every day. And he turned some of them into poems um, and then put them together into a book. And one of the stories that he was sharing was he had a friend that gave him uh, a little tomato starter and he had it in his bag, but then they were like, you can't check this or something. And so he had to go through the airport with this tomato plant. And he said, like the story he was talking about is just all these people that came up and just had giant grins on their face. Just seeing this person carrying a tomato plant through the airport and then onto the airplane. Uh, and then they also talked about the fact that we can experience delight is um, because we've also experienced great sorrow and that because we've had that sorrow, when we have delight, we can see it in contrast. And uh, just the practice of finding delight, something that delights you every day. And then once you've found that, then to share it with everybody. Um, and I think that that kind of goes along with this idea of joy and then joy in community when you have something that's delightful and yeah. you share that with people that you can connect with people in that way. Oh, that's cool. Um, what else? I, this really was meant for what are, what are other ways that you think we are, we need to open ourselves up maybe to being more on that supportive side of this story, the healing side? Marcelino, your hand is up. I think fundamental is um, a sense of trust, that we need to feel a sense of trust, and, and you do mention in there about letting people that you trust in. But I think that's the, that's the challenge for us. In order for us to open up to somebody, we have to feel that um, the container that we're speaking into, that there's a sense of trust there, that it's safe to open up. Um, and even trusting ourselves as well, like um, admitting to ourselves when we're exhausted and we need to set work aside, for instance, to take care of ourselves is, is a way of uh, trusting myself, learning yeah. how to trust, take care of myself. Um, and not, ha not, not, that, not take that to mean that it's a failure on my part, mm -hmm. that it's my, um, inadequacy and ability that I should be able to power through, etc. But instead just uh, just saying I trust myself and I trust myself to take care of myself better than I have in the past. Good. What else? Um, just the word mission and missional and all that is so loaded with whatever you're going to do so they can believe in Jesus. You know, I'm going to do this hospital so they can, I'm going to translate so they can believe in Jesus. I'm going to whatever. And um, so that makes it not love. That makes it goal-oriented. Mm -hmm. So changing it to what if we're the receivers in the missional thing and it's mutual takes care of that. Mm -hmm. That thing that ruins that word. If, if I'm on the receiving end, okay. <laughs> then we're cool. Then we're mutual. What else, what else kind of prevents you from being on the healing side of stuff? For me right now, it's like, yourself I'm not good enough to do this. Yeah, I'm not good enough or, you know, this 
think a lot of us probably suffer from that in the world. I think that's a good one. Yeah. Um, to try something new even though it's easier to say than no. So even if you know that you're going to suffer, you know exactly what kind of suffering you have. So it's just easier to, to go through the same motion over and over again yeah. than changing the path and not know, walking into the unknown. Yeah. Stay with something that's familiar. Fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertainty. spiritual well-being and you see that so much in like prosperity Christianity where if you're right with God you've got stuff yeah uh, so that you know it, it just seems like uh, that's not true you in fact it's probably the opposite often that more and more and more and more stuff makes you less and less and less well emotionally and spiritually I actually have the opposite of that where I have a lot of friends that are in this like very simplistic uh, nomadic lifestyle and don't have very many things and I feel like and I see that they're just enjoying things in life and then I feel like I'm not enjoying stuff because I have too many things and like now I'm terrible because I have too many things um, but I'm seeing kind of the opposite of it that it's a testament. Yeah. I need to be well, we're, we're 15 minutes thing. over I'm going to give my final wrap up here which is that you know we've grown up with this kind of consumerist idea of Christianity where if we do say believe the right things, then God's just going to fix us and give us what we need. And we really missed the power of the Jesus movement. And it wasn't that Jesus was creating a, you know, a what will God do for you kind of belief, but rather empowering people to be in a mutual community. You know, he's really, I would say Jesus had a plan the whole time that he wasn't going to be there forever. And so the idea is, how are these people going to take care of each other after I'm gone? And the answer to that was mutual community. Um, and, and that's such a central part of the historic Jesus movement. And so, you know, our, our brand of Christianity has pushed the mis missional message so hard for so long, and I mean like the Bethania brand, that we've become so over-focused on the doing and the helping part that we've missed the part of the story where we're on the healing, opening up, being helped, supported, loved side, and we forget that we need that. And it's okay to need that. It's okay to feel like I'm in a space right now where I need to just feel the healing, the love, and the support and, and allow people to do that for you. So, my final thought, yes, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> just when you were saying that out loud too, it kind of dawned on me, like, those aren't two exclusive camps. No, like, no, being no. on the giving, that can be very healing supportive right. so like it's also the synergy just how you're saying like the, the, the synergy of being in community yeah um but yeah just when you're talking out loud like then uh you know it's not two exclusive camps necessarily like that you can give support yeah and support at this but we treat it that way like yeah we've got our people who are like i'm always helping and have not carved out any space in their mind when I know they need help right. to allow to it to receive happen. it. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Bob. I think we're our own example. <clears throat> we all created this Monday Night Potluck to create community and um, just to connect with people and create relationships and be there for them. And we started to do it out of a feeling of generosity and God's ability to do it. And now look what's happened. The whole thing's turned around. Glad you guys feel that way.
you, everybody. Thank you. We'll see you next Sunday. Or tomorrow.